Hello, and welcome back to the FEZ Show. I'm your host, Jack Jordan Maynard, and we have so much to talk about today from a really exciting Mexican E-Prix. Joining me to discuss and break down every little bit of that Mexican E-Prix is Edward Hunter and Joshua Birch. Evening, boys. How are we? Oh, I'll go first then. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm good, thanks, Jack. Nice to finally get the season undergoing for me because I didn't watch the first rounds. So uh, excellent to see uh, a really close race in Mexico and uh, some big developments, as I'm sure we'll get into. Yes, good evening, Jack. Good evening, Ed. And good evening, everybody else as well. Uh, doing really, really well. I mean, we're recording this on uh, Valentine's Day. So as you can assume, I'm sick to death of going on social media. Uh, so let's talk about some car racing that I thought was absolutely fantastic and uh, really put together our true love of motorsport. It's all right. We love, we love everyone here. Everyone, we, we love you all, boys, right? Valentine's Day, we're recording a podcast, you know, but... You know, as is life. At right, least we're together, AJ. Exactly. At least we're together, right? <laughs> is that? I don't know. It's getting sad now, very quickly. But anyway, let's move on and talk about Porsche, because, wow, right? I don't think Josh, anyone was expecting Porsche to do what they did in Mexico. Yes, they were good last year in Mexico, but obviously that was at a different track in Puebla. So when we saw obviously practice and Porsche at the front, but you know, practice we don't always, you know. It's never always too relevant practice. But then they did it in qualifying and then they did it in the race. But what I want to talk about, because obviously they got secured the one two, but let's talk about their strategy because I want to talk about the start of the race. When they took that early attack mode, I think it was lap two, lap three, pretty much as soon as the attack mode was um, activated, they were into that attack mode um, activation zone. And it didn't seem to quite work for them. So it was amazing to see how their race sort of panned out from there. But talk to me about that early attack mode. What did you think when you saw it when they took that attack mode? I said in the commentary as well with Ed, it was very, very risky as well because it was an early call. I mean, the top eight used both their attack modes in the first 15 minutes of the race. Very, very risky. There could have been a late safety car, could have been an opportunity uh, to gain some positions up later on as well. Porsche seemed to have their strategy nailed down since the lights went out as well. He got a great start, Verline, he controlled it. Mortara slipped back ever so slightly, and then Lotter came back up. But then as soon as he took the attack mode as well, Mortara overtook him. Verline seemed like he was saving the energy, and they kept switching uh, over on the, on the sixth lap of the race. So very interesting, very bizarre strategy calls as well. It took us a while to understand what they were doing. They were very much playing the long game uh, throughout that race. But Verline, I think he went into that race knowing that he would be the overall winner. It seemed like the, the engineers behind the scenes just had the brain switched on about how long the race was going to last. Both, I think, Porsche and Vern, uh, Adias Cheetah, were definitely thinking ahead. Yeah, Ed, in terms of Obviously, they took the early attack mode, and obviously they stayed at the front, but then when the others took their attack mode, like the Jean-Eric Verne's and the Antonio Felix da Costa's, they were overtaken, right, because of the early attack mode. They didn't really get the advantage that they wanted. The others overtook them. And then they that was that lull period there that um, Josh was sort of alluding to with the them potentially, at that point, saving energy. Did you expect that to be Porsche's strategy or did you think oh they've just smashed it in qualifying great race pace but here we go again a bit like Lotter and Diria in the first race they didn't quite have maybe the tyre management or just some inherent race pace which sort of just faded away 
Yeah, well, they were very quick all weekend. And in fact, we can maybe even talk about qualifying at some point because uh, a lot of, I think <clears throat> there was a lot of uh, people thinking Lotter after he was fastest in FP1, second in FP2, that he was going to qualify on pole. But in the end, Verlein uh, stepped up and got pole position with uh, Lotter starting third. And it sort of quite quickly, uh, once uh, they were able to clear Mortara, there was sort of a Porsche 1-2 and Lotter acted very strongly as a sort of rear gunner so the the uh, Mortar and the Assetidas had to negotiate Lotterer before they could uh, get past Verline when they were offset on attack mode. So um, uh, was I surprised? I was very surprised when Ver, Ver, Verline was leading and suddenly started slowing down on the main straight because I thought he might actually have a mechanical problem. But no, it was actually just uh, Porsche managing energy to perfection. And it seemed like a very confident strategy. So I mean, we know there's been a few changes behind the scenes at Porsche. Uh, a new uh, new CEO's name. I keep forgetting because I got I committed the old CEO's name to memory, so uh, I think it's Florian somebody out of Florian Thomas, if I remember correctly, who's the new CEO. That was the name they said on the podium. I might have heard, misremembered it wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's going to put massive smile on, smile on their face. That result because uh, Porsche one two, not something we've seen in Formula E before, not something we've seen in motorsport for quite a while actually. I believe in open wheel Dan Gurney in a. Uh, French Grand Prix Solitude 1962 was the last win for Porsche in open wheelers, but they won more recently in, you know, Le Mans. It's the same Le Mans team in that Porsche squad that won in uh, 2017, 2018 in World Endurance Championship. So certainly great news for them and great news for Verline too. I thought Verline drove a really, really confident race and uh, and Lotterer much more mature than we saw last season where we saw a couple of... Uh, Let's say he dived up the inside where he thought there was space and there wasn't space. And this time he was extremely well behaved. He was quite well behaved in Dura as well, from what I heard anecdotally. So, um, so yeah, very impressive by Porsche and a brilliant strategy that they uh, managed to perfection. It was quite funny though, Josh, when, when the energies came up with about 20 minutes to go and we saw that Porsche had that 2% energy it was kind of like go 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 now like it was like now attack right everybody knows now that we have more energy than you so let's plan into action so obviously they've obviously thought about it they've calculated it well and then that boom up the field to win the race was that potentially or arguably one of the best strategic races in Formula E history I think you've got the money right where your mouth is there uh, I think that was fantastic uh, strategy calls uh, off on Porsche as well. You did say, yeah, the energy came up with what was it, about 26 minutes to go just after they'd finished their second attack mode. And we saw, was it 38 they had? Everyone else was flicking around 36, 35. Sam Bird had used the most. He was down, I think, at 34% of energy as well. So it definitely looked like um, Porsches were saving the energy. They were very much controlling at the front at this time as well. Uh, Mortar only led uh, from lap seven to 26. Uh, Verline took over lap 27 to 40 as well in the last 20 minutes of that race as well. So they both led uh, 20 laps each in the race, so half and half, uh, which is surprising because we should also be talking about the fact, oh, Mortare done another strong championship challenge. He led half that race. No, we're talking about Porsche's domination. And in reality, it was only a 50-50. It's strange the way it works out, but that is motorsport. And that is the beauty of the strategy course. As I said earlier on, the engineers got it bang on. Porsche could have slowed up, Give it just to make sure that they themselves finished the race because it was what was it 0.1 Verline crossed the line within the end, but they chose to go for that extra lap. Mystery why they did, 
but um, I'm sure we'll explain it throughout the uh, podcast as well. But yeah, definitely one of the greatest races for team strategies. And it's a worrying pattern we're seeing uh, in season three. So in season eight so far with the first three races with race one, Mercedes Van Dorn helping to freeze race two, Degrassi helping Mortar and race three, Lotterer helping Verline. Can't wait to see uh, what happens when we get to Berlin and London, when I think the Neos will be fighting at the front if the rate this goes. Yeah, but what you alluded to there, actually, is what I want to talk about with Ed in terms of when the Porsches cross the line, because we're talking about, you know, couldn't they have slowed down? Why would they make the race one lap longer? And it did, it caught quite a lot of people out, and I suppose it would, because it literally came down to that one second. So you, you would have had to have managed that, you know, 20 minutes, 15 minutes before the race, before that moment to sort of realise, ah, they might cross the line with one minute to go, with one second to go, sorry. Um, Ed... The question is, well, why don't they just slow down, make it one lap? But with Lotterer and Verline being so close together, and I know you, we talk potentially team orders, right? That they may have been told to have hold station, but Lotterer's right there. If Verline lifts off going on that to that, you know, at the exit of the Parabolica, right? Lotterer's surely going to pass him, right? And take the lead of the race, surely, right? If he's slowing down, he's just going to go right past. He's not going to slow down and wait behind him. And that didn't happen. Like, Verline didn't slow down. That's why they crossed that line. I do think if there was, like, a two-second gap, two-and-a-half, three-second gap between the two cars, I think Verline would have eased up and made it that one lap. Do you have the same sort of idea, or do you think there was team strategy in play? I think there was. I believe what both drivers said after the race, which was Verline especially, he sort of said that um, the team was telling me to speed up to make sure that we got 40 laps in instead of 39, which uh, is certainly interesting. I can I can think of a few reasons why they did it. Uh, certainly in terms of uh, Porsche's an EV brand, it certainly shows that they're efficient and it's sort of maybe not necessarily the best advert for Formula E, the two Porsches streaking away to the tune of nine seconds while everyone else is fighting with each other and running out of energy. But uh, it's Porsche could do it because they were in that position because Mortara had spent the race fighting with Robin Freins. An excellent fight, by the way, which I really enjoyed. But Freins ended up um, deciding to go aggressive on energy, which backfired at the end. He fell down to seventh. But but that sort of created this uh, opportunity for Lotterer and Verline to pull away to the extent that they did. Uh, could would they have decided to go for 39 laps if Lotter is a bit further back? I sort of felt like you say that Lotter had been because he was sort of saving energy in the slipstream of their line. I felt he had a few opportunities that he didn't take, and I thought it was very interesting. As my face goes completely dark, hey, I'm back. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I thought it was very interesting that what that Lotter didn't go for it because he's had his own several near misses, much like Verline has, uh, and. Uh, I think uh, the lotter of old, we probably would have expected to go for that. If you think back to Santiago in the fourth season, his first podium in Formula E when he uh, was fighting with Jonic Van for the lead in the other to Cheetah and nearly uh, T-boned him in the back and sent him into the barriers and they just avoided calamity. There was none of that um, on Saturday. So you have to say lotter, a very mature drive. And uh, you got to think if the Porsche pace keeps up, then his time's going to come soon. But... Uh, in this occasion, Pascal qualified him, and that was what ended up being decisive. So uh, Porsche, as I said, it was a risky strategy. Could have backfired. They could have both ran out of energy if they'd not managed it um, by backing off earlier in the race. And it was very dramatic the way they were backing off. We saw Vern doing exactly the same thing to Costa as well, and uh, it ended up being the right call, the way things played out. 
Yeah, Josh, we saw a, quite a few aggressive strategy calls, and even with Envision there, which Ed sort of pointed out with Robin Frines, you know, decided to go on that charge and was told to go on that charge to get into third and deal with it later, right? So they were hoping for that 39th lap, effectively, that the race would have ended there. And that's, I think, what they were banking on. And you like, right, get to third, and then you deal with the rest, right? You defend. And it was very similar with teammate as well, Nick Cassidy, who we assumed had, like, couldn't take attack mode, but then did take attack mode um, towards the end to try and boost his way up the field quite quickly, which also sort of backfired for him with energy towards the end of the race. But I, what was really interesting in that race was the range of strategic options that we saw. Yeah, absolutely. I think even me and Ed said in commentary, we were confused uh, about if Cassidy had taken his second attack mode. We couldn't remember because it was getting later and later into the race. And uh, all of a sudden we saw him dart off in the forest soul and activate it and thought, well, that's a bit unwise with the energy uh, reduction that he would have had to take. He would have been on significantly less than everybody else ahead of him uh, into the last couple of laps. So very strange call. I was a bit worried during the race as well. Didn't say this on the commentary, but I was very worried in the back of my head where the envisions, the way they were racing, hard, aggressive. They seemed to not care at all about the energy recovery. I thought, is this another Nissan? Like what happened to them a couple of years ago when Boemi and Roland at the time uh, just ran out because they were going flat out, overtaking, barging past the Mercedes as well, Degrassi getting involved. Cassidy locking up into turn one and almost taking Rotara out with him as well. It was very much, uh, as you say, get to the front and who cares what happens next? We'll deal with it later. It was the sense that they'd taken a page out of Barney's book from How I Met Your Mother. That's future Nick and that's future Cassidy's problem as well. Just, just over there. I'm not going to deal with it. Uh, we'll just continue racing for the time being. It was, it was fantastic, but a bit ad hoc in my opinion. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Right, Ed, let's talk qualifying because I think we get into get into grips now with this qualifying system, and I'm I. It's starting to look like it's working in a sense, and I still think we are getting the surprises, right? In terms of you know the Mercedes, for example, who blitzed Diria, and obviously they blitzed Diria as well last season, but struggled in Mexico, just about made the jewels right by the skin of their teeth, and then you got the likes of Lucas Degrassi, where we're seeing Mortara right absolutely being dominant this season we thought Degrassi and Degrassi I still think it's only one race right we're not going to write off Degrassi right now I think Degrassi's got a big part to play in this championship head but when he misses out on on the dual system I think that's the shock right because we're expecting Venturi to be up there we're expecting Mercedes to be up there maybe even Porsche now and you know to see them miss out it's it, it's it's still creating that shock, which I f still think is quite good. Just just a thoughts on the qualifying system in terms of how it's doing, how it's potentially creating this more of these front protagonists in the championship. So when we get down to the end, we will know clearly who's in the title fight going down into into South Korea. Yeah, I uh, it's my first time watching it, so uh, I don't have any other kind of frame of reference. Like uh, I know Pico saw it in testing. You guys also the first races for me it was the first time, so uh, I uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, on the whole, I think that I think the jewels worked really really well. Obviously, like you say, Mercedes just about sneaking in by the skin of their teeth. It was really one where they'd struggle in practice and setting up their car, and because of the shorter practice time this season, they didn't have as much time to sort of filter out the issues and get the sort of perfect setup. Venturi 
a little bit quicker on the market, as I said, with Mortaris car, but Degrassi didn't quite get qualifying right and uh, ended up in a battle. In fact, he ended up spinning Van Dorn around and getting himself a penalty, which could well prove costly come the final reckoning. Uh, so a little bit of a clumsy race from uh, Degrassi, unfortunately, and uh, unlucky for Van Dorn as well. I think Van Dorn could probably got a few more points than he did in the end. And it was only really Nick DeVries of all the strugglers that actually recovered anything from the race. Um, as for the duels themselves, they were really always great to see the two DS to cheaters. That one was an incredibly close uh, semi-final between those two with Vern just about pipping the Costa. And that ended up being, again, much like uh, the Porsches, ended up being decisive in the final result because the two DSG leaders ended up working over the Costa at one point, lost the wheel fairing when I think Verline went for attack mode in the Ferrisol Stadium. And the wheel cover fell loose and just about fell off a bit uh, after the first corner in the sort of turn three and four section, thankfully not hitting anyone and just lying out of the way. But uh, that was a bit of a scary moment for the Costa and uh, sort of, again, caused by sort of him qualifying behind. Uh, and then the final duel, of course, with Mortara and uh, Verline with Mortara, just about having the edge. Verline had a slightly scruffy start, and then right at the end, there was that big spin uh, for Mortara, which was very dramatic. There's like CCTV footage of uh, Mortara doing his little dr Tokyo drift routine where he'd gone wide into the Peraltada. He tried to save it like three or four times, and the final time was just a bit too much rotation for him to save. So Verline ended up sneaking through, and Verline still set an amazing time at the end. Uh, I think it was really low, 107.1, which was really insane. So, uh, so yeah, incredible. Um, the duels worked incredibly well. The group sort of format worked fairly well in terms of there was that tension whether Mercedes were going to make it or not. There was Nick Cassidy who tried to do something a bit different uh, going earlier before everyone else didn't quite work out uh, in his group. And um, um, the only thing, the complaint I have a little bit about the this new qualifying format is in the group stages, they sort of because it's so long they change tires and i felt i feel that's a little bit kind of antithetical maybe with hankook coming in they have a different tire philosophy than michelin but the michelin's the whole point of it that i liked was the durability the fact that they could keep going and give more or less roughly the same performance throughout a whole season effectively uh, if, if you wanted to use them for a whole season they were basically road tires they weren't wet and dry and i didn't like the fact that it, because of the tire wear was a bit higher at mexico they let them change in between runs and that felt to me a little bit like um not something i liked i mean i can't say from the team's point of view why they do it but uh, to me it, it didn't feel very formula -y, effectively i think that's part of the rules i think they have to come in and, and and change tires i think it's part of the rules uh for the new qualifying format that in the group stage they have to come in and change tires um so what I wanted to ask Josh in terms of the in terms of qualifying is is that practice which Ed alluded to how critical now that practice session is you know you've got instead of an hour and 15 minutes that they used to have they've now got just that solitary hour with two half an hour sessions how crucial has practice become in terms of making sure that you are feeling comfortable with the track and and, and the circuit and we know we normally used to say oh you know track evolution practice doesn't mean much but now practice might have more of an emphasis on qualifying because you have to get it right and if you don't get it right those people who are struggling practice are probably the ones that are going to miss out on the jewels come qualifying yeah absolutely and as we saw as well in practice for mexico because it was only a single weekend 
uh, there was cars out every second as well. There was always somebody trying either a string of 220 kilowatt lap times or even a few of them, like the two Mercedes, they were practicing at the end of free practice too, a load of 250 kilowatt lap times as well. Darren Frankiti said as well, uh, I would rather be practicing at 220 rather than 250 because once you master the slower speed, going quick is not a problem. Interesting take, and it seemed to pay off for what we saw with the Mercedes struggling as well. But I think the practice times now have become finally what we need in Formula E. They're short, sweet, to the point. The 45-minute session for free practice one always felt like a bit of a, a slug to get out of bed, a little bit of a uh, like, oh, you're sort of wiping the sleep away from your eyes for the first 15 minutes as well. You're sort of like just getting to grips. The cars are just trailing around the circuit for the first uh, 20 minutes or so. Then the last five, if we're lucky, we get a big uh, lap time. Now it's all changed. Finally, you wake up and you're like ready. You're pumped up. You're ready to go. And you're banging the car and out you go. You've got no time at all to look at the sites, do any setting changes or anything. You're out there and you're constantly going round and round and round. And it works. You get the data that you need as well. You get the system ready. The qualifying change, as you say, has helped as well, because now instead of having to do, what, two laps in qualifying, you've got to do a maximum of eight. And that's if you get to the duels. Uh, you can do four laps in the group stages. And then you've got to do your duels, which is two more, plus another one as well. So it's fantastic. We've finally got a system that works really, really well. The only problem I have with the qualifying format, as I said back in Deary, and I said to Ed in the commentary as well in qualifying, it takes too long. We used to have a 45-minute qualifying. Now it's an hour and 15. That is so long that it needs to be shrunk down and just, just tidied up a bit. And I think now they've started to realize it because I heard some of the teams were complaining that literally they were sitting around just waiting with nothing to do. Drivers hopped out the car uh, in between the sessions when they were changing the tire because they just needed to talk with their engineer. We saw lots of them do that. Very, very bizarre. Just tidied up a bit and we've got it perfect. And also, we didn't see any added time on in this race. I do wonder if that added time was put there, if we had a safety car, exactly how many of them would have got to the finish. And I must think as well, usually 45 minutes of practice, they go out there and learn the levels of the reduction uh, as well. They can't do that anymore. They really can't. So it's a guessing game if that safety car comes out. It's brilliant, this new format. Yeah, I must admit, um, there is a lot, a lot of positives, and I totally agree with you. I remember sitting there waiting, writing my qualifying report, and I was like, oh my, we're still going. Like, the gaps between the duels, I think, is my issue. Like, the gaps between the quarterfinals or the next duel starting from the one finishing, it's just too long. Like, just get on with it. Because um, you're just sitting around all day. And then it's less time for those teams to prepare as well, because you're going into that three-hour window between the end of qualifying and, and the race, when you now it's like two hours and 45 minutes. Um, between the front runners, like finishing up and, and then getting out again. So I just think it needs to be shortened. It doesn't need to be that long. I still think the groups are too long at 12 minutes because we like that crescendo at the end. Oh, Mercedes is going to get But we're waiting. Like, you're just like, okay, okay. You can have a cup of tea, make a sandwich in that time. And, you know, the first couple laps, they're just not important. They're just so not important until you get to the end. And you're just like, well, can we shorten the sessions down slightly? So we get to that crescendo quicker and then that might help as well because you know the first six seven minutes of the group stage are particularly dull um i have to admit until we get to the end yeah if i may inter interrupt jack i feel like q1 in formula one is basically that for me <laughs> so yeah. i didn't really mind 
but uh, I can see where you're coming from on that. Yeah, because as I said, it's it's very similar to the F1 qualifying system. We like the F1 qualifying system, but they don't, you know, they, there's only like two or three runs in that. And the tracks are longer, so it takes, you know, when you go to Spa and so forth, by the time they do one lap, and, you know, the, the time's up very quickly. Whereas the tracks are so short here that they've done their, they've done like tons of laps, right, really quickly. But let's move on because there's so much still to talk about. And I want to talk about Jaguar. And I'll come to you, Ed. What's going on? Because Jaguar, they were kind of like this last season, but then they came out and they were all right. You know, they started slow. They didn't have a great pre-season testing. This season, they looked better than last season at the start. But in Mexico, they were just just nowhere. Like, what, what are we thinking about Jaguar? Uh, well, not looking good. <laughs> Certainly, like you say, uh, it was really just qualifying that went wrong for them. They couldn't get to the duels. Uh, Mitch Evans qualifying 11th in the end, Sam Bird 17th, and then Mitch Evans didn't have a great start, so they were sort of 14th and 15th after the first lap, and then it was the case of them having to battle their way through the car. Like you say, it's good. It's actually got some good pace in it. It's just uh, when they don't qualify so well and they have a bad first lap, it's a matter of having to fight their way through the field and to use up more energy in the process. As we saw, uh, it was interesting because I fought back to race to uh, Valencia in season seven where Mitch Evans complained. Um, because Jake Dennis decided not to do the extra lap in the end, and Mitch Evans complained, oh, I've got so much energy left, why did we back off there and lose positions? And, uh, and this time, they went the other way. They risked it to try and get Mitch Evans into the top six. I think he was running sick very briefly at one stage. And uh, and then, of course, he ended up uh, having to, basically not being able to finish without running out of energy, basically, and uh, having to really, really save quite dramatically and drop down the order and Sam Bird as well. And the two Envisions, as we said, were on a similar strategy. Interesting that uh, Envision will be using Jaguar uh, powertrains next season, so there's a little bit of a uh, maybe the maybe they're using the same data already. But uh, but yeah, um, I think it was a difficult day, and it was sort of exasperated by them getting the making it taking a risk on energy to try and save face, get a few more points, and in the end it kind of backfired. But uh, I think they'll be back because the car's still quick. It's still the same car fundamentally, but. Um, you know, got on the podium several times. Did they win a race in season seven? Sam Bird did win a race in season seven. Yeah, I don't think. I think Mitch Evans got a few podiums, but never quite won a race in season seven. So um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Jaguar bounce back from this. But certainly, their morale were taking a big hit after after what was a pointless day and a really difficult uh, opening couple of races for them. And, and Josh, I want to talk about Nissan because Nissan's sort of in the same boat as as Jaguar. And you know, we talk about these driver lineups and. Ugh. I, we don't know what's going on with Sebastian Bowemi. It seems puzzling. You know, the man who dominated Formula E at the beginning just can't seem to do anything right. But then, nor can his teammate at the moment, Maximilian Gunther. And I know you might say that there's like a bedding in period potentially, but Maximilian Gunther at BMW was a star, right? And, you know, he could pull qualifying laps out the back. You know, the Santiago win going back a couple of seasons now was was brilliant from Gunther. Like, the talent was there. Everyone thought, man, this is the next superstar in Formula E is Maximilian Gunther. And it's not quite worked out. And even at Nissan, like, he's just trundling along ahead of Buemi, but he's still, you know, he's not really making an impact. Yeah, I was very, very worried about uh, Nissan this weekend as well. Uh, Maximilian Gunther, the bedding in period really should have been over by now. I mean, it's we are at race three. I know Diria was a double header, but still, you've had all of preseason testing in that car as well. You've had two uh, race weekends now, three races 
it should have been a lot better than that. The same argument could be thrown in the way of uh, Sergio Sete Camera at Dragon. Not, not Sergio Sete Camera, Antonio Giovinazzi uh, at Dragon uh, to confuse my drivers. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't like uh, what I saw this weekend. Uh, you say about Sebastian Buemi, we do not know what's going on with him. I noticed as well that he's one of only three drivers who is, does not appear in the big Formula E intro that they play at the start of every broadcast on the world feed. He's not in it. And as I said, back in Diria, I think Nissan are going to have a hard time keeping him focused on Formula E this year with a very strong challenge in the World Endurance Championship he's got going on as well uh, with Toyota. So I, I don't know. It's a head scratcher, literally, as to what is happening. We said in the race, me and Ed as well in the comms, um, that Boemi started 18th, Bird started in 17th. And to link the two Jaguar and Nissan points together, they sort of did link together throughout the race. Uh, Boemi got up to ninth place, Bird got up to 10th, and they were sort of tag teaming each other uh, to sort of go for the overtakes. It was some very good uh, racing, and I was very proud uh, of what they were doing as well. I thought, yes, we've got Boemi sort of back into it as well. And Boemi did stay there. He, he did stay up in the top 10. He, he, I think he finished seventh in the end because of Degrassi's penalty for making a Mercedes sandwich. But Sam Bird and as well, he dropped back a lot. He got caught up with energy crisis as well. He hit 0%. It, it was a bit of a mess at the end there for Jaguar. And I've got to admit, it's a difficult one to swallow, but Jaguar are on a long, painful path, I think, this year. Uh, that they're going to have to maybe not get back until at least Berlin. Uh, it's going to be a lot of work. They've got a month to find the issue, but I can't understand what the issue would be considering it's the same generation of car in its last year. You would have thought this would be in a great season, especially, as I said, we had Mitch Evans last year, a championship contender, and Sam Bird won in Diria race two. So very, very strange as to what's gone on at Jaguar. But uh, Nissan a roller coaster weekend and so in terms of ed in terms of nissan and sebastian boemi i think we'll stay on this topic for like two seconds because i'm not going to question sebastian boemi's attitude or you know talent or so forth is this a case of nissan for the last couple of seasons just haven't been quick enough to be at the front or is this because we're, we're expecting Formula E to be so close, right? And we, we really should be expecting Nissan to be fighting the likes of Porsches at this point, the Tech Cheetahs, you know, at this stage of the Generation 2 car, considering it's its last year, considering that it's just an evolution from last year's car in terms of just software, because the hardware is exactly the same. So is it just the Nissan is inherently slow and it's, that's the problem? Or is it more on the driver's side? I definitely think it's the car, in my opinion, because they remember they introduced a new car in the middle of season seven, and uh, Roland got a couple of good qualifying performances out of it, but it never felt like they really got on top of that car and figured out how to get, especially in terms of efficiency. Uh, although, interestingly, they were one of the teams that played it really conservatively in Mexico, and it kind of paid off for them. I uh, I was actually really impressed by Boemi's uh, performance. Uh, Gunther, I thought, did really okay in qualifying, qualified 10th. Uh, for the race and ended up sort of dropping back as things played out. But Boemi climbed his way through the field. I think he started around about the same position as Bird, put a really great overtake on Bird, which I remember at the first corner. And uh, it felt more like, a little bit more like the Boemi of old that we got used to seeing in the first couple of seasons who just won races constantly in uh, for Renault Edams. And he's not had quite the same luck with uh, Nissan only winning 
once, I believe, in New York and a couple of other podiums here and there. And there was notably at Mexico um, last time uh, in 2020, last time we were at Hermanos Rodriguez, of course. So, um, uh, I, I like I, said, I, I agree with you. I don't question Bomi's skill. I think it's more a case of him uh, just sort of having to fight against a car that Nissan don't necessarily haven't necessarily got the best out of is there more in it i don't really know i feel like nissan are focused more on gen 3 at the current moment it's felt that way for a while at least to me i feel like one of the teams that is sort of all their focus is really on season nine at the moment and it'll be interesting to see if nissan have any customer teams in season nine because there are a lot of rumors there are a couple of rumors going around i think there was a rumor that dragon might be looking at nissan but i wasn't sure if that was any credence to that one but uh, certainly Dragon are looking to become a customer team rather than making their own powertrain for, for Gen 3. So we'll see. see Nissan are one of the manufacturers committed long-term, so they've probably got to make it work somehow. And uh, you'd certainly think Oliver Gregory Drew at Edams will be doing their best. And the new boss at Nissan, uh, is it Volpe? Tommaso Volpe? <laughs> Again, all these um, OEM CEOs. Uh, I'm going to have to memorize them next time we do a podcast. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I certainly think... Um, I, I think it's a little bit too early to judge uh, Gunther. I think he needs a good race result under his belt, and then maybe we can see uh, if he's matching up to Boemi or not. But I certainly wouldn't write off. There's a little bit of life left in the old dog, Sebastian Boemi, so don't count him off just yet. No, definitely not. I wouldn't. Um, and it was interesting what you said there about Dragon in terms of potentially becoming a customer team, in terms of we kind of wanted that for them ages ago and hoping that they would pull in an American manufacturer because obviously with Jay Penske and um, obviously Roger Penske as well, his dad with great links with Chevrolet and Ford, you would have thought that something could have happened, but um, it makes sense because they're not a car manufacturer, a bit like Envision, Envision Racing, sorry. Um, and there's not a real massive need for them to make their own powertrain. So it will be interesting to see if they do turn their attentions to become a customer team. Before we wrap up, uh, Josh, I think we'll just talk slightly on DS Tech Cheetah because um, they also had a great race, right? Sort of, they've been in the mix of nowhere, sort of like since season seven. They've kind of just been in no man's land, near the front, not right the fastest, but they're there or thereabouts, you know, the Red Bull of yesteryear, you could say, um, for, for Tech Cheetah. It was a good race, and they had some problems in that race as well with Vans Radio. Like, it was, it was a really strong performance from them. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree. They are compared a lot to the Red Bull of yesteryear, aren't they? Um, hopefully, like Red Bull, they can have a big resurgence uh, into this season as well. I think as well, this weekend, I think Mexico was their strongest in a long, long time. I know it didn't work out the way you think it would, uh, but they got a podium with John Eric Verne as well. But qualifying was a big thumbs up for them. We talked about it earlier on with their duel. It was one of Ed's highlights as well. 11 thousandths of a second separated uh, Vern and Acosta. If I was a team principal, I would be breathing a sigh of relief that that is the gap between my two drivers. That means they're both on pace. They're both exactly the same. They are both world champions. It's brilliant. They've got, I think, one of the strongest uh, lineups for drivers on the grid. The race was a little bit weird. As you said, Vern had problems on the radio. We were hearing it as well because on the commentary me and Ed were doing as well, we had the pit lane channel up and we had Vern's radio selected. We heard just before we went on air and the lights went out as well. Uh, Vern was told over the radio, be careful with energy management today. This race is going to go longer than scheduled. Now we thought that could mean, oh, he's going to have added time. They're thinking of a safety car. 
didn't know what was going to happen at the end. So they were immediately saving energy all the way throughout the race, both to Costa. He was a bit further back, went to come over. He started fifth of the grid, didn't he? Vern started fourth. But DaCosta dropped back quite quickly. Vern stayed at the front. Then DaCosta came back through, had the contact when he tapped the back of Verline. Verline went for attack mode. DaCosta sort of came through and knocked off his nose cone as well. And uh, all the drama of it being left at the side of turn four and five at the hairpin. Uh, but then Vern, definitely the strongest one for me all day, kept his head, kept his energy management and did some fantastic overtaking. Uh, again, teammates working together. It seems like this is a pattern we're seeing this year. Usually in motorsport, we say teammates are the worst enemies. In Formula E, they are your best friends. They truly are wingmen and it truly is a top gun moment. I've been loving this. I can't think of a team uh, where the two drivers are having a row with each other. They're all working in wonderful harmony. I mean, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I think Formula E is the perfect basis to set it off with. Indeed. And Ed, just to finish off the Mercedes, obviously minor blip um, this weekend, you could argue. Um, not at the front, not really challenging at the front. Bit of a disappointment in terms of Van Dorn and De Vries. Um, you know, they both made it into, into the jewels, but they didn't really feature in the race. And if it wasn't for... The, the sort of the cars that dropped out at the end, that neither of them could have scored points. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And just briefly on Vern, uh, two things I thought he did extremely well, considering he had food poisoning the whole day <laughs> to get that uh, third place uh, was a pretty solid. Vern always does well. Remember, he was caught what I think we later found out was COVID at Marrakesh in 2020. And he was able to get a podium that day as well just beat Maximilian Junifer uh, to second, if I remember correctly. Or was it third? Uh, I can't remember. But uh, he was definitely on the podium in one of those positions. And um, I remember hearing on the radio, uh, me and Josh were listening in at one point, uh, the engineer told Vern, don't use the radio, which I thought was interesting. Uh, so they clearly heard that we were listening in and didn't want us to <laughs> give information on this live stream that clearly everyone was watching and listening to on uh, Joshua Birch Motorsport on his YouTube channel. So, <laughs> but anyway, we have a YouTube channel too, in case you're interested. There's lots of Lego animations and stuff <laughs> that I do. Um, but anyway, um, uh, well, the question was about Mercedes, wasn't it? And there was the interesting moment I thought was when Van Dorn actually decided to overtake uh, De Vries quite early, quite early on in the race, actually. And it felt a little bit like um, De Vries um, was uh, managing energy. And you know, Degrassi had a little moment with him as well at the hairpin at turn five. And it felt like De Vries was sort of on the back foot and really on the defensive. I felt some of his moves, actually, there was one he did on Cassidy, I think, at turn nine, him and De Costa. And Cassidy had a big battle, and I felt De Vries was a little bit marginal on that. It sort of felt like, um, it sort of felt a little bit kind of um, desperate in places, but uh, just about avoided contact, didn't quite squeeze Nick Cassidy into the wall. So uh, <laughs> well done on that. But um, and Van Dorn, I think, uh, a little bit unlucky. Like his race unraveled really when Degrassi hit him at the Ferris Hall Stadium, which was missed on the broadcast, unfortunately, but Degrassi got a penalty for it. So it must have been pretty clumsy from Lucas, you'd imagine. So uh, you'd have to say, uh, I think Van Dorn could probably have got a better result had that not happened in De Vries sort of just about surviving to sixth. So it was sort of damage limitation for Mercedes, not quite as bad a weekend uh, day as Jaguar had, but certainly Mercedes would have expected perhaps to dominate and it didn't quite pan out that way for them, neither for them or for Aventura. Really only Mortara had like the cleanest run of all of, of those Mercedes powered cars. So there's work to do, but certainly Mercedes, I don't think they'll be too uh, put out by uh, the day's work 
because they at least got something out of it. And fastest lap as well for Derues. So it certainly shows the car had pace. They just couldn't quite use it with the with the qualifying behind the Porsches. Right, boys, we're out of time. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure um, talking to you both about this race. And we got a, we got a couple of weeks off technically now because it's a while away now, about um, just a month and a bit uh, till Rome. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Let's do it all again in Rome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the break. As you can see, I'm not in my usual surroundings. So <laughs> I hope to be back uh, back at home by the time we do it, rather having this big light that constantly keeps uh, blacking out on me and <laughs> messing up with my camera. But hopefully the audio is fine. So, um, But anyway, good to talk to you again about Formula E. Yeah. It's been a while for me. It's, it's the holiday season now. Half-term or half-term around the country is actually really weird. Half-term. Uh, so some people are not half term for some other people. So holiday seasons get those holidays in, especially with all the COVID restrictions that are being lifted at the moment. But thank you so much for listening to the FEZ show. We've enjoyed it. We will see you soon for the Romy Prix. Goodbye. <laughs>